0: Um, okay. okay, Peter Fairfield is an acupuncturist, healer, and medical intuitive with over 35 years of clinical experience using many forms of healing. He has lectured internationally and has done long retreats in China and the Himalayas, plus studying in many countries, researching the basis of an east-west model of psychophysiology that combines in a energetic basis of Asian medical and spiritual traditions with modern neurobio and quantum science. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula.
1: And I'm Taz. Peter's own research encompasses many forms of traditions, such as Taoism, Tibetan, tantric meditative, and Qigong practices. He is the happy author of Deep Happy How to Get There and Always Find Your Way Back. And today, Peter will talk about Deep Happy. What is Deep Happy and how to connect to it? And, of course, just how do we keep connected to that deep happy feeling?
2: <laughs> well, that's a big question. That's the whole damn book.
0: <laughs> well, if, if, if all right, I'll just let her rip. <laughs> you, you say psychotherapy, it sometimes takes the body an energetic pattern time to adapt to new alignments. So we're going to be talking today about uh, aligning your body. And during that period, we're going to constantly getting used to the new and deepening possibilities in our life. Change is not only possible, it is inve- inevitable.
1: Inevitable.
0: Yes.
2: That's awesome. so, you know, I remember everything that's in books, so thanks for the reminder. Well, you know, the thing about Deep Happy is I, I actually hadn't realized that there was a lot of happy books out there when I wrote it, and what, what I realized is that the, most of the other happy books that I've seen, although good, um, talk about, you know, finding happiness in the outer world and doing things to make you happy and all that, but in my research with uh, people and humanity over the last 40 years, I realized that there's a place inside us that is already, always happy. And it's, it's our inner being, and that's why I call it Deep Happy. You know, you can call it your Buddha nature. You could call it a lot of things. But it's very simple when you think about it Deep Happy. You know, there's a core of us that's way inside. No matter what's happening on the surface, it's like you can, you can be underwater with a giant storm going on above you, but, but just a little bit below the, the surface of the ocean, it's still and calm. And there's a place of us that's just like that. Like I just spent an hour and a half, on the phone, trying trying to make plane reservations and software that wasn't work and everything else, and there was a part of me that was a little bit frustrated and was was uh, a little bit strong with some of the people I talked to because it was a little frustrating, but the, most of me was happy and okay, and so that's the thing about deep happy once you connect to that deeper part of us that's that's you know connected also it's where we connect to the universe. Um, Then we don't have to have a smile plastered on our face all the time. We don't have to like everything because it's okay to interact with the world with passion and feeling and adventure and and reality. And reality is sometimes challenging and uh, curious, (laughs) understated. But once we realize that we're okay inside, and once we're okay that that okay place inside is where we connect to the infinite, uh, then it changes things. Then you realize all you have to do is get a little still and quiet and go back in. And the answer of what to do or how to do or how to be or who we are is right there self well peter uh,
1: how you did, happen- um, i was to say peter how 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 did this research for deep happy be uh, begin for you what what really took place
2: well um it actually began when I was a little boy um when I was about eight or nine, somebody told me about the idea of infinity, and I just when I asked what that was, they said, well, it was something that didn't begin or end, that went on forever. I guess it said it something that just went on forever. So I thought about that, and I guess that meant to me it didn't begin or end. And I was just dumbfounded. How could something not begin or end? And so I just kept thinking about it, and I decided, well, okay, I'm going to try to feel that place. I didn't realize that was kind of weird for an 8-year-old or 9-year-old, although I've since found a number of people that have had the same experience. So I would close my eyes sometimes, I don't know how often, but sometimes, and I would just close my eyes, and I would just try to connect to the place that did not begin and did not end. And one day, I think it was after a few months, I got there. I just sort of dropped into this place that was infinite. And I went, oh, oh yeah, this place. Now many years later, I was doing retreat in the Himalayas, and I'll get to that story in a minute, but I realized that that, that had been a bridge that had connected me to other times in those places. So I, I always sort of had this this feeling inside me of infinity of the infinite that there was something more beyond the veil of what we lived. Although I didn't have those words when I was young. When I was about 15, I really started to feel that I had to find something. That there was something missing. That there was something much more meaningful than what I had, what I could think about or touch or feel. I didn't have words for it. And um, I was at, actually at that time I was at, going to military school.
0: Oh, and yes. I didn't
2: like it there at all, but we had to go to church five times a week and Although I wasn't particularly connected to the the, the kind of uh, of uh, ceremony that they had in the church there I think it was episcopalian, nothing wrong with that but i i, I did sort of go into prayer in a meditative state five times a week in the in the school, and so it it touched it made me touch something here I didn't know what it was, so I started to look at uh uh, psychology and philosophy, and I just didn't think it was there what I was looking for. And then uh, during the late 60s, I spent a lot of time experimenting, you know, looking in, the, in in drugs and sex and stuff. I was really hoping it would be there. I spent a lot of extra time trying to make sure. And there were glimpses of it there, of course, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And then uh, when I was 18, I, I, I discovered meditation, and I learned to meditate. And from then, I lived in quite a few spiritual communities and ashrams. And I would kind of alternate. One year, I'd be out in the world. And another year, I'd go back into some some spiritual practice or some spiritual community. And it kind of went like that back and forth. And then um, in my early 20s, I I began to study healing, uh, acupuncture. I think it was 72 or something. And um, so I, I began to really look at the physiology of what made us human. You know what? What was an emotion? How did it relate to the body? What's, what what's there's an emotion and a feeling, and then you know what is disease? How do you get people to be better? What's the relationship between our spiritual self and our physical self? And and you know if I'm a doctor, how does that how did that work together? So those are all questions I spent a long time looking at, and then when I was about uh, and and you know I had founded an acupuncture school at that time. I was the acupuncturist was at Esselin. Um, I had uh, you know, had a lot of interesting experiences. I, I had studied with various teachers from many different special disciplines. And then when I was about 35, um, again, I started to really feel this pull very strongly. Something was missing. You know, I had a house and a car and beautiful relationships and a dog, but something was missing. Something in my heart was empty. And so I decided that I would, I, I thought I would go to China to study. I was an acupuncturist that taught Chinese medicine and so forth. And actually, my dad had been born in China. My grandparents were missionaries there. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And so I gave up my practice and sold most of my things and put a few things in in storage. And uh, I went down to Monterey for the summer to study Chinese. And uh, it was a very kind of meditative environment. You know, I would study We'd have class six hours a day and we'd study another five or six hours a day and, uh, it was you know, pretty much every day. And in that process, I started to, to, to feel that, um, you know, I wasn't going to find what I wanted to find in China. But this other voice that just keep going. And one day, I, I was out by the ocean at night, again, feeling this, this, this call. And I just said a prayer. I said, whatever it takes, whatever I have to give up, whatever the cost. Just take me to the place where I can get to the next level. And without realizing that these symbols of life just sort of burst from my chest and went out into the universe. I think it was either the next day or the day after I was meditating after class and a face appeared to me in my meditation. It looked at me and turned sideways and disappeared. And um, so I thought to myself, well, okay, whatever this is, I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I'm not going to get neurotic over it. I'm just going to let it go. But if it comes back up later, I'll know. So I, I had made plans to go to China. I was going to teach English at the Shanghai Academy of Traditional Medicine in Shanghai, which is kind of the Harvard of Chinese medicine, in exchange for 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 you know um, for teaching. I was going to study in exchange for teaching.
0: So I got a letter
2: the next day after I had that vision um, that the people that were sponsoring me weren't going to be there, and I didn't have the position anymore. So I decided I would go to Taiwan. When I, so when the class was over, at the end of the summer, I flew to Taiwan. And my first morning there, I, I woke up and I we'll go to the Palace Museum and took a taxi over there. And as I drove up, two Tibetan llamas were walking down the stairs. And it just put this bug in me. I've got to find some llamas. And so about six weeks later, I was visiting a friend in southern Taiwan and I got a, and I got a call. Do you want to meet some llamas? <laughs> I said, yeah. And I gave him my address. He says, be out in front in five minutes. So I went downstairs and five minutes later, this taxi drove up, and there was this old Chinese man in the back seat, which is not too unusual since it's Taiwan. But he, he had these old silk Tibetan robes on. And so we drove one block, one block away is where we went. And we walked into this house. And in, in, in Taiwan, in the older section, the downstairs, it's kind of like a garage. It's kind of, and, and then upstairs are the houses. So as I walked in, on the desk, there was a picture of a Tibetan llama I had a headgear and glasses and stuff, but I thought to myself, you know, that's the face from my vision. You know, those time I went, no, 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 forget it. No, it's not it. So I went upstairs and I was introduced to a couple of llamas who were visiting from Taiwan, sorry, from Nepal. And when I looked at the picture beside their bed, there was exactly the face that I had seen in my vision. And so um, I said, excuse me, but I know this guy. And they explained that, that with their teacher from Nepal and that they were going to Nepal in 10 days Would i like to go with them to meeting? And so I'd, I'd already, um, set up studying at a Chinese medical hospital, a brand new one in Kaohsiung. And I'd been on Taiwanese TV because was the first American to go to the school. And I just said, yeah, I'll go. And 10 days later we flew to Nepal. And, uh, that began a, a very, uh, interesting adventure. And, um, I uh, ended up having a clinic in this Tibetan town in in Nepal called Bodana. And I treated most of the high lamas from the Nyingma and Kagyu traditions for, I don't know, for about seven years. And during that time, I spent a lot of time also in China studying um, uh, with different Qigong sects, which is kind of an energy meditation and healing. And I did long retreats in the Himalayas. And then after that, again, I continued my... I I, I had... I'm kind of, there's a lot of streams of this story. I, I had been a biofeedback therapist at UCLA prior to that, and I studied a lot of physiology and Western science and so forth. And, uh, you know, got my acupuncture degree, and things just all, all coalesced. But the, the whole idea was to look at the nature of personality and the nature of the enlightened being inside. Now, one clear, clear strain to this is when I first took my teacher's pulp, yeah, I thought I was pretty good at the pulp. I was in '85, and I'd been doing it—I don't know—12, 14 years or something—taking pulse. When well, I take this pulse, and in the Chinese system, when we take somebody's pulse, we're not just feeling for how fast it is or how, you know, how high it is. We're actually feeling for little nuances that give us information, very specific information about how the body works, how all the organs work. I can describe someone's parents from their pulse. I can—I can describe their spiritual connection from the pulse, and many things. From when I took at that time when I took my teacher's pulse, there was a quality of the pulse I just couldn't even think about. It just stopped my mind cold. And over the next few years, I would feel that quality in, in other lamas' pulses, not all of them certainly, and, and some Westernish pulses even I could feel, but I still couldn't quite couldn't quite think about it. I couldn't quite understand it. And then a number of years later, I was back in the San Francisco area, in this great Lama, and again, you don't have to be Tibetan, this is just my experience. It's it's kind of very, these experiences go through all spiritual traditions, I believe. But anyway, this one great Lama, who's almost 90, came from the Himalayas, and he gave this teaching and was in Tibet. Nobody knew what he said because it was a bad translator that day. But the whole room filled with this powerful, powerful energy. And he just dissolves into light. At least that was my perception. So a week later, I went to visit him where he was staying in Oakland. And I, hello? Yes.
0: Are you there? Yes, okay. we are.
2: Yeah. So, so a week later, I, I went to visit him um, where he was staying in Oakland. And I walked in and he just grabbed me. And he goes, you're my student. He put his hand in my head to give me a blessing. And there was so much energy coming like, out of his hand. that It felt like hot water was just streaming through my body. And I was in a just very much in an altered state. I said, thanks. Kind of an understatement. What can I do for you? And he said, here, take my pulse. And when I took his pulse, I understand the quality that I had felt in all those other pulses. It was the quality of enlightenment. It was a quality of pure, spacious, undifferentiated, you know, reality. It was infinity. It was the infinity uh, that I had experienced as a little boy. And I realized that the state of enlightenment is nothing we have to get or buy, although my book does help. (laughs) That was an advertisement. But it's something we just need to uncover because it's intrinsic and it's innate in all of us. And so from that moment, it helped me kind of, it made me really understand all the teachings that I had or at least some version of the teachings. And, And it helped me to understand really what medicine was about, which is, not necessarily just fixing people, but it's helping them to uncover this innate awareness that we all have. And so that's how I practice. Um, you know, I, I have an acupuncture practice with my wife in Mill Valley, California, center for health and happiness. And about half of my practice is on the phone with people all over the country, and um, sort of guiding them into these places in their body, and helping them to release things. And uh, it really has. And that's for, from that experience onward is really affected who I am and what I do.
0: And you and you work with um musicians and artists and think and authors who have blocks?
2: Yes, I have several specialties. Um I, I work with a lot of kids, all the way from young kids, adolescents, teens with all kinds of, of anxiety, depression, um and behavior issues like that. I have really good success with kids, love working with kids. And uh, I mean I work with anybody. But I also have another specialty where I work with uh, creative people. I have traveled with a lot of world class musicians and um touristing Floyd and others. Uh really helping them when they're interested in that. <laughs> not all spring musicians wanna be wanna move into transcendence and awareness. Some of them just want to get over the, the night before. Uh which is not my favorite, but you know they deserve that. But, but uh, one one of the things I am good at is helping people bring out their creativity. And then if, if say, a musician coming back from the road having trouble hitting a note their voice is off or their guitar playing hand doesn't work, or something that I can help them fix that. But I work with a lot of just normal people in our clinic and on the phone finding themselves or, or helping them heal or helping them move into a different octave of movement. Well, in every let me day... Ask oh.
0: Oh, I was going to say, sir, would you let
1: me ask you a question here? Um, when you took the pulses of the llamas uh, can you at this point can you can you make a connection between the organs of people being urine acupuncturists? I know you can make a connection, but I'm thinking, is there a vibration or something that you can look at as um supporting you and seeing if that person's more healthy and how to adjust for those particular things when you when you work with people
2: well yeah, um, I mean that's what I do i mean yeah, I'm not just your pulse diagnosis you know in well, the in the in the standard and there's a lot of variations to <laughs> what we could call standard uh system of pulse diagnosis we 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 are trained and have done a lot of advanced research in looking at the function of the organs, the balance of the organs, the balance of the basic energy system, um, vitality levels in the system in general and in the particular organ. Um, and from that, we can do certain pathology, both physical, emotional, energetic. And, and also, um, you know, if they're affected by any external influences like cold or wind or electromagnetic fields or certain environmental toxins, things like that. All that's pretty much available in the pulse. But also, I mean, I've done it for 40 years And uh, so, you know, there there really isn't so much difference between people as far as what's going on with them. So, it just comes down to pattern recognition. So, most of that you can hear in someone's voice. You can see it when they, who they are and what's going on with them when they walk in the door. Uh, You know, you get. How is it
1: different with the llamas? How how was it, how were the llamas' pulses different? Were they more relaxed or were they. You know, beating in more sink or or what was well, that you, kind of you're
2: you're you're still thinking in terms of heartbeats from the pulse, and of course that's what it is. But within within the, the within the the wrist, under the first inch and a half from the just at the base of the thumb up on the radial pulse, if you if you feel in different positions and different levels, you'll also get different sensations. It's more than just the heart. But, but, you know, there's a whole list of diseases that are called monks and nuns diseases in Chinese medicine. Um, you know, there's certain, you know, they might sit more, some of them might be less active, some of them might be very active. Um, so so that, you know, that part wasn't so different okay. than the regular people. But underlying that, um, you often found that the the, the idea of, of compassion for, which is really part of heart physiology. There's a lot of research now it's called oh, neurocardiology. That's,
1: that's
0: and, the key um, to it all. Pardon? I th- that's the key to it all. Then the compassion.
2: Well, the, the, yes, it is the compassion. but particularly compassion when compassion actually comes from the organ of the heart. Otherwise, we can be—if you listen to the tone of my voice, listen to the change—otherwise, we can be cerebrally compassionate. Oh yes, we, we must serve all beings. Bye. When that compassion is actually really coming from the organ of the heart, then it changes the nature of the wisdom. And, and like I'm talking now from my heart, it's a very different vocal tone. And and so w- when the love and the compassion and, and our attempts to heal people and understand the world and work on ourselves really comes from our own work in our own heart and our hearts become unburdened from the habitual patterns of guarding and frustration and disconnection, which... Really, our world fosters much more than the heart being open. Then, what happens is, is is that we really become aligned not only with ourselves but with other parts of humanity and also the universe, because that's what communicates through the heart. It's interesting embryologically, the heart comes from what would be the top of the head, just below the crown chakra, and it drops down as the baby's developing into the chest so So there are these primal connections from the heart. It's from the physical heart up to the energetic connections, up to the the top of the head, to the top of the brain. There's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus, which among other things has to do with putting opposing viewpoints together and finding a reality that's big enough to put polarized views together, to find a big enough reality to put opposite sides together. And so when we think about having a higher view, we're actually going to a higher part of our body, a higher part of our brain. And then from there, it, it connects to higher dimensions of knowledge and wisdom. So I did find a much higher percentage of open hearts among the lovers, although, you know, they're still people. But uh, the, the heart is really a key, and, and that's a really important step in becoming deeply and truly human, connecting to the heart. So there, there's so a parallel. Uh, yes?
0: Do we need to, to clear the trauma and the um, emotional hurt? From the heart before we start working on the compassion.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, the trauma and emotional hurt actually doesn't really affect the heart. It's amazing we think it does, but it actually affects the other organs. And there's also another organ I want to the pericardium, which in Western physiology is just a membrane, but it's also an energetic field around the heart. Most of the things we call you know hurting the heart or breaking the heart are actually are breaking our preconceptions about how things should be. The heart itself is it's really un, untainted by all that. You know, we think that we think it's dangerous to have an open heart, to be tender and, and vulnerable. You know, we feel like Bambi in the headlights or something. But really, when, when we have an open heart, it means that not only are, is, are we open to the world, but the world is open to us. We can see very clearly what's around us, what's coming, who someone is. From their just from their energy, their vocal tone, how they are. We get a sense of, of how they can be in places that's difficult for them to be as far as how, how integrated and how how much of an integrity they can be. And so when we really have an open heart, it's the only safe way. When we do emotional work using the Chinese medical model or the energetic model, we find that there are different uh, defensive styles, depending upon what organ system. Like, for instance, the liver would use sort of a tightness or, or, or aggressiveness or hyperactivity. The spleen has a sort of evasive quality of slipping away. Uh, and all the, all the organs have these different um, um, uh, emotional defenses. The pericardium actually has kind of a, a disconnecting uh, style of defense. But but the heart's defense is openness, clarity, connection. And then it just takes courage, kind of like the cowardly lion eating a heart. It takes courage or courage. To see the truth, but when you hold that courage in your words to see exactly what is that's that's the place of safety that's the place of being able to really function in your world clearly and openly this point.
0: So when you work with people over the phone, um, you must tune into the voice.
2: I tune into the voice I also tune into what they're telling me, and um because I'm after I did the retreats in Asia, I found that I had a lot more ability to pick up subtle things about people. Um, some people call it being medically intuitive, but I, it's basically just human traits just sort of tuned into. And so when I'm working with someone on the phone, I can sort of sense where they are, I can, and I have them tell me to. And so I guide them into experiencing subtle sensations in their body using the breath and awareness. So rather than doing acupuncture to wake up certain areas or can make certain connections or release certain things, by guiding them into into, um, experiencing these parts of their body that we all have and we've all disconnected from, as soon as we put our consciousness in some place in the body, it begins to wake up and come alive, and then those old patterns begin to fall away. So in a certain way, the phone builds on my acupuncture experience, but it, it teaches someone how to in a sense, do it themselves because they're working with my guidance. And um, it's very powerful on the phone, actually. Hmm.
1: Peter, would you do me a favor, please? Would you sure. um, not, not um, talk so closely to the phone? I think maybe that there's some distortion. So if you could just kind of back a little bit away from the phone when you're talking. I'm
2: actually using a headset. that I always do all my interviews like this. Is this any better? I pulled it back a little farther.
0: Yes, that is better. Yeah. It is okay. better. Sure. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Okay. So breaking down the patterns of our thought, um, uh, uh, you know, if if you're, you know, working with people and that kind of thing, how do you break down the patterns of of, of our thoughts so that we can maybe understand more fully um what we're thinking, what how we get to where we need to go.
2: Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna change your question from thoughts to perceptions. Okay. Because we have several perceptual modes that we understand ourselves with and we see the world in. We have I'm I'm just gonna break it down into three, there's probably more. We have thoughts, like you mentioned. We have feelings and then are the felt sense, and then we have emotion. Now, the difference between emotions and the felt sense is not often differentiated. Let's talk about that for a moment, then we'll come back to both. Emotions are fairly clear; we have anger, sadness uh, guilt uh fear uh, uh, so forth, things like that they're very specific, and as long as we keep to the to the basic fundamental emotions, then there's a very clear Physiology to them. Like certain functions of anger have to do with the liver and gallbladder in Chinese medicine. Certain functions of sadness, grief loss have to do with the lungs, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so it, it, they're very clear and they have to do with a specific aspect of physiology. You know, I think one of the problems with modern psychiatry, besides the, the influence of, of the psychiatric, of the pharmaceutical profession, which has you know, a lot of really uh, cloudy research to, to be kind. Um and it really has taken over the, the, the psychiatric profession most of the western drugs don't even heal they're just trying to placate the, the idea of healing and changing a person getting them off meds is, is not the idea but this idea of feelings of, emo- of emotions uh, a lot of times we're in families where it's not okay to be angry or it's not okay to be tender or love is very distant or we don't feel sadness because somebody died we don't acknowledge that so Many of us, if not most of us, have have these uh, uh, buffers on how we feel. We don't love deeply. We don't feel hurt deeply. We don't we don't notice our fear deeply. Or maybe we feel more fear and doubt, and not so much love and acceptance. Or maybe we're afraid of our will and our anger and our strength. And so we we tend to buffer these these aspects of of our of our emotional sense and our emotional reality. And this happens actually in the physical body by limiting the function to a certain degree of our organs, of that part of our organ function. And from that, we can get the disease arise from that. We can get digestive problems or prostate problems or certain kinds of cancer come from the, the suppression of, of emotional material or traumatic material in those areas. Um, but then we also have a felt sense uh, that I differentiate from the emotional sense. The felt sense is basically how the world feels. Now, if you pay attention to your tummy when you're at a restaurant going down a menu, you know, you can go down. You know, eggs and bacon, or you know, sprouts, or uh, you know, um, cheese sandwich, or a, a tofu sandwich, or <laughs> whatever you want. Almond butter, or lasagna, or steak, or salad, or you know, a, a whole plethora of things. If you notice, your, your your stomach will actually have a slightly different sensation for all those words, and and our stomach actually tells us exactly how we feel about any given food, or even if you're in a in a, um, a health store or something, and you, you look at different vitamins, if you hold every every bottle, you'll actually notice whether your stomach likes that or not. Our body's always telling us what's happening. And so our digest- through the digestive system primarily, but also through the heart and a certain kind of our nervous system for some frequencies. our body will tell us how things are. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. This feels right. This feels wrong. I like this. I don't like that. I'm not sure about that. The, the the felt sense, although there are some variations in that, um, tells us the quality of things. We can walk into a room and we can we can if you just relax a little bit, you'll you'll get a feeling of how every person feels in the room. Like what's their tone? Is this person tired and or, or angry or this person's curious or this person's open? All those people have a tone. And when we think about doing something or acting in a certain way in the world, We'll have a feeling about it. Oh, it feels good. It doesn't feel good. Or we're trying to talk ourselves into something. We're kind of a cerebral mode. So the self sense gives us a whole other kind of information. Now, when we get back to the mind, the mind has the ability to give us very clear information that can come from the intuition, which is sort of a global sensing of things that comes up internally. You could say it comes from outside us that we're tuning into or our body is tuning into it all that can come through the intuitive process and it can be—it can come through words or ideas or heard sounds or feelings. But often it comes through thoughts. But when we are disconnected from our felt sense or our emotional sense, the thoughts tend to run on and on. You say, we think the same thing over and over again. We kind of sound neurotic. We, oh, this, I should do this, I shouldn't do that, I should do this, I shouldn't do that, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. Whenever the mind is like that, It means we are disconnected from our felt sense or emotional, because it's a smokescreen. For some reason, we we get the impression that we shouldn't feel something. Maybe we don't. Maybe in our relationship or our job or something, there's something we don't want to look at. And our felt sense or emotional sense is telling us that. Well, then our mind, our mind, which works for us, us as our inner being, will take over and it will keep us from those feelings by these repetitive thoughts. But as soon as you actually feel the truth in your body, and all the truth is in our body, the the mind stops on a dime. So, So we don't want to break the mind. We don't want to stop the mind. We want to find what the mind is telling us. If the mind is going round and round, or it's intense, or it's repetitive, it means that we're missing something. So then we go into our body and find actually what we're feeling, and then the mind stops. As we get used to that process and the mind calms down because it doesn't need to keep us from anything, then the mind becomes this wonderful informant where so we can think interesting things and I'll get a feeling, oh, I need to go somewhere or I need to talk to this person or somebody needs my help or I, I need to eat a certain food. But so the mind then becomes a very interesting uh, screen that, that information comes. Sometimes I'll be driving down the street and I get, oh, I should go this way. I, thought, I followed, I go that way, and then I found out there was a traffic jam the other place. Or I get a sensation, oh, I got turn on the TV, and all of a sudden there'll be a special on something I've been thinking about, and the mind, the happiness or something. So once we sort of get back into into touch with our emotional self, our felt self, we become okay with all that, and the mind calms down. And that's really what Deep Happy is about. Deep Happy is about... Beginning to understand the process of of how we're we're, we're wired and put together, so all all the things I sort of mentioned in the last uh, forty minutes are are parts of that. And there's very specific practices and processes and and descriptions, which gradually to drop into that place inside us. It's all happy, and how to get there, and how to find your way back. Oh, that's the title. But also, um, there's lots of stories from my life and, and other people's lives that talk about, that illustrate what I'm saying. And once you sort of connect more to Deep Happy, then you begin to play with the universe and begin to talk to the universe and, and ask the universe things and, and get the universe to prove things. You can experiment and see how the universe works. And that's the other part of Deep Happy.
0: Well, I have a question about the felt sense. Because yeah. uh, when I walk into a room... Sometimes I take on the other person. I mean, I can feel what other people are feeling, and sometimes it, I can take that on. Is there a way well, to...
2: Yeah. Um, y- y- you don't run your energy in your spine very much based on some issues you had with them. Can I talk about you a little bit personally? Sure, sure. Stable. Because of some issues you had with your mother, your energy goes forward. And so you tend to be a softer, more touchy-feeling person that can go to your head easily, but sometimes you get overwhelmed, but the, but the energy does not run, run enough quite in your spine. When, when we bring all of our energy back to the polarity of our spine, it makes us feel more contained. It tightens up our physical body in a healthy way and lets our energy expand. It gives us a sense of, of, of who we are without necessarily having to take on somebody else without our, without our um, decision. So when you're going into a place like that and you're feeling too sensitive, what you want to do is make sure you're in your body. And um if you want to talk after the after the session, I can tell you some places where you're not connecting. Um, and everybody has those. There's probably nobody in the planet that doesn't have places that are place not connecting, because none just you. But um so if you begin to just breathe in your tummy and then you begin to feel your spine, not even meditatively, but just sort of feel the bones of your spine, your coccyx, sacrum, your low back, mid back, upper back, open. and just sort of feel feel connected to that series of bones. I think you'll find that it'll it'll shift how you're sensitive. You'll still know what's going on with everybody else if that's what you can do, but you won't necessarily have to take it in your body because your body is actually not on the surface of your body; it's kind of inside your body. A lot of people have it. A lot of half the people have it. So as we feel more of our spine it, it, it moves our boundary out to the edge. So that we can we can make a decision about what to let in and what not to let in when it's outside of us rather than inside.
1: Yeah,
0: thank you. So try
2: it, let me know.
1: Okay. Peter, I have um I have a question. Or yes. I have a statement. <laughs> I really want to hear you better on the phone and I would appreciate it if you would take off your headset and talk directly into the phone itself. Uh, your voice is uh, really low, and it vibrates, and it's a little distorted, and I want our listeners to be huh. able to hear you.
2: I'm so happy you to do, do that. Have... I've probably done 25 radio shows with this phone in this situation. I haven't had that well, trouble. Well, you know what? Quiet.
1: I know exactly what you're saying, but I'm asking you to do that.
2: Sure. I'm, yeah, I'm doing that. Okay, good. So how's this?
1: Talk a little bit more.
2: Okay. I mean, I'm just talking into the to the handset now.
1: Okay. How's that? See, um, yeah, the handset. Okay. Now, just I, it really does sound a little better. I don't know what it does, but I just want you to know that. Okay. I sure. want to hear you, right? <laughs> okay. So, thank you so much.
0: Now, Peter, um, to get back to uh, like a, you were talking about the chaos of you getting a t- uh, airline ticket. Um, how do you go back into deep happy with all of this chaos on the outside happening? How do you tune into your deep happy when all that's taking place? Because we have that in our life all the time. I mean, there's like all right. this.
2: Well, you know, I'm used to it. So all we got to do, oh, yeah, I just remember it. And then I'm going to realize most of me is just fine. You know, it's like if I have a swimming pool and it's raining out, the top of the pool is like, probably with the rain, but you know, six inches below, it's, it's fine. We're like that too. We, we you know, we, so once you begin, just to begin, begin to feel your body and do just just some basic breathing exercises, and begin to notice how you feel, and begin to notice where you keep yourself from feeling, and then you begin to to, to find what's deeper than that. It's there. It's just there. So it seems like anything. It's kind of getting used to it. You know, if you if you walk into a, a a symphony orchestra, the very first time. you never anything like that. And um, you'd be so overwhelming. You know, 100, 100 musicians up there, and you just kind of hear a big sound and maybe hear some variations in it. And it took a while to really figure out what it was. But then if you didn't for a while, you'd, you'd be able to tell that the second chair of player had a flat G-string. You know, it just takes perceiving it and getting used to it. So as we begin to feel ourselves and remember good moments that we felt. In other words, how do you feel when things are really great? Not necessarily that you got a new car or that you made love for the first time in a long time or that you had a great meal or you saw your grandchild, you know, whatever it is. But how does that make your body feel? And as you look back into these wonderful moments that we've had, you'll find that there's a certain sense of how your body felt through all that. And then if you begin to look deeply at that sense of how your body felt, you'll find that there's a place that feels the same through all those moments. And that's the beginning of finding that place in deep happy. Now, also, there's a part of us that's never changed. You know, I'm I'm 63, but there's a part of me that doesn't feel any different than when I was, you know, 7 or 12 or 15. There's a part of me that still feels like the same Peter Churchill, no matter how my body changes or my personality changes or how my education and my conceptual view changes. And so that's also a place where we begin to experience deep happy. What's the part of us that's never changed? What's the part of us that's always been the same? It's a wonderful little part. Whenever we're having a good day and we're kind of feeling ourselves and we're feeling kind of calm and still, that's the place. So, so we begin to to notice that there is a continuation of of, of sensations and moments that we've had that that that, that don't change. And then, so that that's the doorway to deep happy.
0: There's a pause pause here. I had a question, and then I was was listening to you so intently I forgot my question. (laughs) Oh, I know. I I was going to say, when I'm in that spot of being, um, I can feel it sometimes when something goes wrong with a radio interview or equipment goes down, and I stop to feel my body, I have a a real tightness in my solar plexus or my stomach area. Yes.
2: Yes, that is everybody in the planet, at least I know, has, has that. And that's a place where we really make ourselves kind of numb. And it's it's just below the sternum, it's it's where the, the, the kind of the inverted V of the ribs comes up. It's just right in that turn that, that we said that we can say the P of your stomach. If you just breathe there and feel the breath expanding right there. You can breathe right, you know, right into that feeling. Now, sometimes once you do that, you might feel a little bit of nausea. Well, that's actually waking it up. And then if you breathe through that a little more, then that can go away. Another thing that's, and, and it, you can use the breath, to the expansion and relaxation of the breath to massage that area. And the looser that area is, the freer you'll become. That really helps the intuition. It helps digestion. It helps a lot of things. Now, you can also take your basic drinking water bottle, like Arrowhead or whatever it is, a uh, liter, half liter bottle, and just, just fill it up with hot tap water, so it's very warm, not burning. And you can put the round right end of that bottle right on that solar plexus area. That's, a, it's a good size. And you just let the heat just warm and penetrate in there. And then as you use the breath again and just expand and relax with that heat, you'll find that whole tension place will melt. And, um, when I first started to do biofeedback, I think it was in 71 or 72. And I was learning relaxation exercises and breathing techniques. I discovered that I had—it felt like I had a knife sticking right into my solar plexus—and but I had made it go numb. And it took me a while before I could learn to relax that and not have that feeling. Because I had that feeling, and then I covered it up with numbness. And so, as we begin to go into our body and find these places that we that we've covered up with lack of sensation and and with, with kind of repression, just by habit. Um, and we begin to open them. Sometimes they feel a little worse at first, maybe a little sharp, a little dull, a little achy. But then as we keep working with them, then that goes away. And and then we feel free again. And that's that why we, we have a lot of exercises like that in deep happy. So it's,
0: the uh, solar plexus is where we put our guard up? It yes, yeah, it's, it's, right, it's, it's right there. I
2: mean, we, we, there's a lot of organs there. There's part of the liver there. There's a reflex from the heart there. The transverse colon is going through there. There's pancreatic functions through the common biodexure there. You have adrenal reflexes and kidney reflexes right up in that area. So as soon as we we shut ourselves off from feeling or we have worry or fear, or whatever it is, that place tightens. And so as soon as we begin to relax that, it begins to open up all the organs of the body. There's there's a nerve called the vagus nerve that that has a parasympathetic or relaxing effect on all the organs. And so that comes through the diaphragm and begins to innervate at that area. So if we just begin to breathe and relax, then we'll feel all the organs of the body relax. And there's often such a sense of well-being that floods the body as we begin to open that solar plexus area.
0: So everything is so interconnected.
2: <laughs> yes, and it's all in the same bag of skin. It's all in the same planet. It's all in the same universe. You just have to keep getting bigger to find out it's connected.
1: Well, it's interesting because you know, talk about enhancing your intuitive skills to the inside of your body, (laughs) Uh, being able to connect and be able to feel those different energies and those maybe different thoughts or pattern and every you know that that one has. So um, you know, that's deep happy. learning to really connect to those areas in your body and take time out to do that. It sounds like it, people... It
2: is, not, but you know, a lot of psychics, it's interesting, a lot of psychics that have had very, very troubled family lives and they learn to be out of their body. Um, and um, to, you know, so they learn to go out and they you know, learn to have a lot of perceptions out there. Then they learn to make a living out there. and uh, But to really integrate and to, to keep balance from, from our perceptions, from our, our those outer, more subtle perceptions. I find it's very useful and very important to come back into the body because our body has a lot of very important wisdom. You know, you hear, oh, we don't come with an operating manual. But yet, as we come into our body and we relax and we, we get clear, clear enough again to, to, to reintegrate to all the places that we've unknowingly pushed away, we have all kinds of wisdom and guidance all the time.
0: Well, that's interesting because I do psychic work sometimes, uh-huh. and I don't want to be um, influenced or tainted by other people's feelings. And so I, I, I do it, but I'm turned off at the same time. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, when you go into your awareness and you shut your body off. Yeah. But if if you if you do a practice without that something in your spine. And really mm-hmm. grinding yourself and putting a field around you, you'll be able to get their body sensations, which is what tells you, you know, you, you get a lot of health information. You really get their emotional and personality information from their body, uh, and then you can do that without mm-hmm. being too, uh, too 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 aware.
0: You're my t- little birds t- in
2: the tripping away.
0: You're uh, a medical intuitive, also. I mean, you. Uh, so you work with people's medical I mean I know you're an acupuncturist but you, you go beyond the acupuncture, correct?
2: Well, you know, acupuncture is just a way it's just a way to to access the physiology of something, both the energetic physiology or the physical body. And so I utilize acupuncture and also herbs and homeopathics and nutritional supplements and but also, you know, just as a model for for dealing with all kinds of things. Now, medical intuition is just a kind of sensitivity. It's just a kind of sensing beyond what somebody could tell you or what you know their blood pressure or their heart rate might tell you. It's it's a sense of sort of getting a, a more subtle impression of what's going on with them. And so um, I, I try to use that sensitivity in my diagnosis, and so it kind of all comes together. And then we utilize the acupuncture and the other therapies to sort of regulate a person and put them back into balance and back into function. So, um, so yeah, you know, we, we do that at our clinic in Mill Valley. It's called the Center for Health and Happiness. Can, can I give my website?
0: Yes, go ahead, please. Um, uh, we have two websites. The one website
2: for the book, which also has contact information, is called deephappylife.com, deephappylife.com, and you can just Google DeepHappy or Peter Firtho and find it. I think I have a number of things on YouTube now, and um, we will be doing some seminars all over the country and also in the Bay Area. So if anybody's interested in being on our mailing list or, you know, be notified when we do something, they can contact us through DeepHappy. Um, and, like I said, we do work individually in at our clinic in Mill Valley and on the phone all over the country. And they can get Deep Happy um, from Barnes & Noble or from Amazon. They're a local bookseller. It's on ebooks and it's on um, Kindle.
0: Do you want to give out your clinic telephone number?
2: Sure. It's um 377 that's probably the best number to reach us.
0: Okay, where and, did that
2: uh, at? Center for Health and Happiness right in Mill Valley, California. We're about six miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. But we're scheduling right now workshops uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And we're going to be in Seattle and Atlanta and Maui and Phoenix and Portland, Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, and I think Philadelphia so far. But we're adding them all the time. If anybody's interested in having a Deep Happy Workshop in their area. They can contact me and uh, we can see if we can organize that together. By putting that out there, we've gone to some unusual places and met some great people in places I wouldn't necessarily thought of going. So it's, that's why I put it out there because you never know where you're going to get taken.
0: <laughs> Does, uh, do wow. you have any stories of a client that, just re- that you were working with that really blew your mind? I mean, you, you have... So many people you've worked with, but I mean, is there one that is just went on beyond your expectations? Well,
2: yeah, you know, I mean, I have, I probably worked with seventy thousand people over the years. I, I have a woman that just came to see me recently. You know, she was about seventy, and uh, her son had died twelve years before, and um, she'd had a difficult breakup with her husband, and she had just kind of gone into a rocking coma. She looked like she was kind of in a daze, and um, she had a lot of lymphatic congestion, digestive uh, congestion, and her mind, you know, she could get through, you know, she could see her friends and visit, but there was not a lot of vitality, there was not a lot of creativity, there was not a lot of, you know, vital connection to life, and, um, you know, she's after four weeks, she, she kind of bops in the office, she bounces around, she looks happy, her face is really clear, uh, when a flight of congestion is clearing up, she, she feels excited again. She's actually thinking about maybe she might want to be in a relationship again. You know, she's come back to life, and uh, that's typical. Uh, you know, a lot of people come. You know, so we, we do a lot of anxiety, depression, that sort of thing We're with a lot of kids, but we work with, with people really that, that have, they're not sure who they are. They're not sure where they want to go, or they know where they want to go, but there's things about them that are holding them back. And so those are the ideal people for us to work with. But uh and my wife also has the, is in the clinic, she's an acupuncturist as well, and she also does neural feedback. We have a German diagnostic machine called a Vega that's very interesting for looking at unusual things in the body. And uh she also does uh, facial rejuvenation. We have a nano stem device and so she does these incredible facelifts. Uh, when you first come in, she does your one half of your face. You go look in the mirror and you just see the, the difference between one half and the other. So we do a lot of fun things there. And uh, really, you know, it's just a matter of looking at where someone is stuck or where they can't go or where they they feel like they're limited and begin to revitalize their body and their heart and their mind. Things can change. You know, we're, we're humans on earth. We have a right to be happy. We have a, a right to be vital. We We have a right to be ourselves. And... So many of us have learned not to be those things or to limit those things in certain ways. But if it's in the body, we can fix it.
0: So your uh, website's life dot com. Is that correct?
2: That's right. And there's another one called PeterFairfield. dot com. That's it's more of a professional one.
0: Okay, it's dot com. And the clinic phone number is four one five three seven seven zero eight six two.
2: Yeah, that's right, the Mill Valley.
0: So if people get your book, Deep Happy, they can actually start working on themselves through reading your book?
2: Yes, yes. It's designed, you know, just by reading it. I, I put myself in a meditative state when I wrote it, so when you read it, you kind of go into that state. And, it, you know, just reading really gives you ideas. I think after every chapter I have several practices you can do, and there's lots of stories in it. And, um, you know, we'll be setting up some online uh, places where people who read the book can talk to each other. And we're doing, uh, like I say, s- seminars all over the country.
0: Was there anything uh, that really surprised you while you were writing the book? I mean, did something come up in your but, face or surprised you while you were writing this book?
2: Well, it's kind of funny. Like when I, I, I had met the publisher, uh, Jan Johnson, of Wiser book a few years before, and she'd sort of been after me to write something. And a couple of years ago, she came over and. I don't know if i would written anything yet, and uh, so I got this idea for Deep Happy, and so she said, well, she had a board meeting in a couple weeks if I did an outline in a chapter, you know, and she liked it, she could get it through. So anyway, three weeks later, I had a check. (laughs) I was very lucky. So I got the check, and every day I'd come down to write it, and nothing was coming out. And so after about six weeks, I was just going, you know, maybe I should send a check back. So we live, at a, we live at the top of a very high hill in Mill Valley. Actually, we live in Cordova Dura. We live in one of the highest houses in the area. You can see the whole bay, and we're right next to a big open space. So that morning I went, I walked off the trail, and I walked about a half mile, and we're on the hilltop, and we turned the corner, and here's this valley, and here's Mount Pius And I just bowed my head and put my hands to my heart and whatever bit of humility I could muster, and I said, please, what do I need to know to write this book? And a big booming whisper came out and said, It's not the Bible. And I just laughed out loud right in the right on the trail. I just burst out laughing. And it just took all the all the preconception away. And the next day I I just started writing and I wrote four or five hours in the morning for the next, I don't know, eight or nine weeks and it all came out.
0: So you were expecting too much of yourself.
2: Yeah, I was trying to make it too important, too serious, and really I just needed to let it rip. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, we thank you so much for being with you. And uh, do you have any, I know you've read through the workshops you're having, but do you have anything local in the Bay Area coming up, a workshop?
2: Well, we'll probably be to set something up for September, uh, for November. Um, so being nationally, but I want to do something here. We'll probably do something up in the Marin area. Um, so if people are interested, just contact me. And actually, as soon as we get enough people, we'll just do one.
0: Okay, great. So I'll let you know
2: so you can tell your listeners, and uh be happy to have
0: both of people.
2: But the workshops are very fun. We start off, we we, uh, we start doing some basic practices, and then we really get into let, letting go, discovering what patterns are holding us back in our body, patterns from our parents, patterns from our life, relationships, and so forth. And then we, we, we get to let those go, and then we begin to work on our connection to the universe, and... Uh, by is by Sunday afternoon. Everybody's feeling really happy and jazzed. It's really, really kind of fun. We do it as a good group, and uh, it's it's very powerful. I, I'm, I bet it's been surprising how powerful it is and how happy the groups are afterward. It really changes people, in quickly. And then uh, I've got some advanced stuff on on the back burner, and so, so it's it's kind of it's we're developing a national group. that's really kind of fun.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us, and we.